We're going to be looking, Dan's going to be preaching from 1 Kings 17, but he'd like me to read some verses from John 20, verses 24 through 31, the Gospel of John. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And eight days, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our presence. You know, as we look at this, as we review this story that might be old to us this morning, my my hope, my prayers that, you know, will kind of be renewed as as we look at this story. We'll appreciate this story for the encouragement and the the truth that we can really glean from it. So uh, how does that sound? Does that sound okay? Are you with me on that? Can we do that together? If, If you're following me, I want you to lean to the next person. If you're tracking with me here, lean to the person next to you and say, this sermon's for you. And this sermon's for me, okay? If you're with me. If you're not saying that, then you're not with me and I'm watching. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's pray as we get started this morning. Lord, we're going to look at an old story, uh, a really good story. Lord, one that might be new to some of us, one that's probably very familiar to to many of us. But Lord, we want to ask you this morning to help us to see with our eyes, hear with our ears. Lord, help us to believe in our hearts and help us to understand with our minds this morning. Amen. Amen. So I'm just going to put it right up front here. The, the main point, the thing that I want us to, I hope to communicate this morning from this story that Elijah was used by God to demonstrate God's power over life, demonstrate God's power over life, and to show that God's gift of life is for all people, right? That's what I hope you'll leave with this morning. Um, and as we get started, I just, I really do want to acknowledge your being here. And thank you very much for being here this morning. If you weren't here, I'd be speaking to myself. And my kids, because they sort of have to be here. But thank you all for being here. It's nice to, that you're here. Um, my kids, I mentioned my oldest is 15. My youngest is five. Uh, a couple of them, the three middle ones, were gone for a few weeks visiting some family um, on an extended uh, 
extended family visit, right? That's great. That's a good thing to do in, in summertime. Those are actually my kids incognito there. Uh, visiting family, right? Great summertime thing to do. Uh, taking vacations, hanging out with friends, going to picnics, holidays, working summer jobs, right? Those are all great kind of summer things. And in our culture, right, there's the summer blockbuster movie, right? Probably some of us have gone to see big movies this summer, and maybe that's part of our culture, maybe that's part of your, uh, your experience in summer. And it seems like the last 10 years, the, the summer blockbuster movie has really been some sort of superhero, right? Some sort of flying, caped, whatever. And there's something about our culture really draws us to superheroes, right? People of all ages are really drawn to superheroes. And some of you may have heard of this guy, Stan Lee. Um, He passed away last fall at 95. He created superheroes and he, a lot of different superheroes that we know, like Superman, not Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, the Hulk. He kind of invented these these characters. And in 2013, a few years before he died, there was a group of people who aspired to create superheroes like Stan Lee did, right? And they said, Stan Lee, can you give us some tips? Tell us how to make good superheroes. And so he, he gave them this lecture, these tips. And he, this, is, this is what he said. This makes a good superhero. Superheroes need to spark the imagination. They need to represent the ideal person. They need to have some sort of superpower, you know, the superhero superpower, bigger than life. They need to experience personal problems, right? These are things that we look for and find and resonate with, with good superheroes. And they need to have some sort of an origin story. Um, that's what Stan Lee said about Good superheroes. Um, as I mentioned, my youngest child is five. Uh, his name's Joel. This past year, he was in pre-kindergarten, and one day he comes home from school, and he's like, guess what? Guess what? There's going to be superheroes at my school tomorrow. I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I'm imagining, like, you know, some dad or whatever dressed in a Batman costume with the built-in abdominal muscles in the suit and like some kind of spider-man like oversized floppy suit you know that's what i'm picturing i'm I'm saying oh joel that's really cool what you know who's coming and he said oh there's going to be a firefighter and he said there's going to be a police officer and and there's going to be an ambulance at my school tomorrow and i said and I, I thought to myself, well, that's pretty cool, right? That's like real superheroes, you know? And we kind of can resonate with, with everyday people in many ways, acting in kind of like these, these superhero uh, kind of characteristics, these kind of superhero uh, roles. Um, so if you grew up, if you were to grow up in an Orthodox uh, Jewish home today, you would include some Old Testament characters in your list of superheroes, right? And the guy we're talking about today is Elijah, and I'm going to dwell on him because he's our guy for today. And both to, to Jewish people in the past and today, he's a real superhero, right? A real, he, he lived, he did all kinds of stuff, and he kind of seemed to have superpowers, right? Like if we think about the things that Elijah did, he controlled the rain with his words, he raised the dead, called down fire from heaven to burn up a wet, soaking altar, uh, he fought for good and justice. He purged idolatrous priests from the land. He even showed superhuman speed. He ran faster than a chariot. Like, Elijah, wow. Uh, he took his cloak, he beat it on a river, the river parts. That's pretty amazing. Um, and probably the most amazing thing he did, he never died, right? He's, one day he's with his, his protege, Elisha. Elisha, he's with Elisha. And 
the, the heavens open up, a fiery chariot and fiery horses come down and kind of like somehow like push Elisha away, like move over Elisha. We're here for Elijah. Take Elijah and he's gone and he, he doesn't die a human death. Like so that kind of sounds superhero-ish, right? So Elijah never died. Um, and some Jewish people, both in the past and even today, they thought like, oh, he didn't die. He's going to come back. Like he's going to come back at some point, finish living his human life, right? And, and there's even some places in the Bible that suggest that, and even say, like, yeah, Elijah showed up. Um, and the fact that Elijah didn't die, that becomes one of the specific reasons, one of the reasons that when Jesus was here on earth about 2,000 years ago, some of the Jewish people were saying, wait, is that, are, are you Elijah? They actually thought he might have, Jesus might have been Elijah. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not right. But, okay, some of the Jewish people thought he might have been. Um, and this is kind of interesting, too. So even today, Orthodox Jews, Jews believe that Elijah comes to earth periodically, um, not in body form, but spiritually, that he shows up at certain times, regular times throughout the course of the uh, course of the year. And this is one example. So one tradition of um, that the Jewish people follow is that on the eighth day, the young boys are circumcised. And when there's a, the formal circumcision ceremony, they actually set out Elijah's chair that represents the place where Elijah will come in spirit and observe the circumcision of this Jewish boy on the eighth day of his life. Like, yeah, kind of superhero-y kind of thing to do, right? So it's, it's not surprising that Orthodox Jews, they're raised to really look at uh, Elijah as a sort of superhero. He did amazing things. He demonstrated amazing power. And the fact that he didn't die, right, what's, what's in there that preserves this hope? of the Jewish people that someday Elijah may return, might return, will return to earth and win the day against the enemies of the Jews. So I, I want to hold on to this little superhero motif for a little bit longer and consider Elijah's origin story. Like, how did he, how did he start? Okay, so this is recorded in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. So that's where we're going to look for, at that chapter for the next, uh, next little bit here. And the first verse... 1 Kings 17.1, here's Elijah's origin story. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Then that's all we get. We don't even know where Tishbe is. We don't know where it was. It was so insignificant. The location is lost to recorded history. We, we don't even know where it is. Somewhere in the region of Gilead, but that's it. We have no information about Elijah before this point. We don't know his parents. We don't know, did he have a formative life experience? Did, was he, what socioeconomic class was he from? Was he bitten by a radioactive spider? Like, right, we don't know anything about him. He just, bam, he drops there. There he is. According to Stanley's formula for superheroes, good superheroes will also suffer some personal problems, right? This makes the superhero relatable on a personal level. And when we look at the story of Elijah, wow, he is so relatable in so many ways. Like, so after all, think, think of what Elijah goes through. Um, we'll be covering more of this over the coming weeks if you're not familiar with the story. He experiences the range of emotions, of desires and physical needs that we experience in our lives today. And even though Elijah, right, he's given such clear direction, he's given prophetic words from God, he still experiences intense physical and intense emotional needs. He experiences fear. He experiences severe, severe depression and hopelessness. And just like you would expect in a good superhero story, right, there's this grand, monumental, 
literally earth shaking, reckoning on a mountaintop. And Elijah's reminded where his strength, where his power and where his purpose came from. And he stands a little straighter and he leaves the mountain more confident and more certain of what he was called to. Okay, so that's kind of like our overview of our blockbuster superhero, Elijah. So we're going to get a few more glimpses of Elijah over the next few weeks, but let's continue his story right now. So we heard a little bit about his origin, where he came from, just a little bit, because that's all there is. And then, here we go, here's the action. He said to Ahab, said to Ahab, and here's our next character, Ahab. We know actually at this point more about Ahab than we do about Elijah, because Ahab was the king of Israel. Um, You've probably heard the names King David, King Solomon, right? They were the kings of Israel. And then about 50 years later, well, let me step back. After Solomon, there's some fighting over like, hey, who's going to be the next king? They can't figure it out. The kingdom splits. So we have the kingdom of Judah and kingdom of Israel. And then we have some kings in line in each kingdom. We're following the kingdom of Israel. And about 50 years or so after Solomon, we get Ahab. So that's who we're talking about. Um, And if we if we go back uh, to first Kings 16, we get some commentary on Ahab. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, any of those previous kings. We don't know all the details, but it's like Ahab looked at the evil done by the kings before him and he upped the level of evil. He, he trivialized the wrong things done by those before him. Just kind of to wrap it all together, summarize it. He ignored all of God's rules. Those, those kings had decided they were, they knew better than God, but Ahab went even a step further. And he just like, didn't just try to recreate or reform or tell God what to, he like discarded God and pulled in some new gods, the Baals and Asherah. And, and then he went even a step further and he married a woman named Jezebel, a princess from Sidon, a, a territory to the north. And she and Ahab together just institute and bring in this idol worship, the worship of Baals and Asherahs. And they not just kind of allow it to seep around, but they institutionalize it and they formalize it and they bring it to their whole kingdom. We get another glimpse of what Ahab and Jezebel are like in a later chapter in 1 Kings. Um, Some of you probably are familiar with this story too, right? So Ahab, the king, he sees a, a vineyard, he wants it. He says, hey, can I buy that vineyard? The guy's like, no, this is my inheritance. I'm not going to sell it. Ahab's like all upset because he can't buy this vineyard. Jezebel's like, ah, no problem. I'll take care of things. Right. So she goes and she sets up this whole conspiracy to have the owner of the vineyard killed, stoned to death. And then she comes back to Ahab and she's like, hey, you got that vineyard now. How's that going? And Ahab's like, great, we got the vineyard. This is the kind of people that Ahab and Jezebel were. Um, so here's the guy Ahab that Elijah sent to talk to. This is the one Elijah's confronting and continuing in our story. This is what, this is what Elijah says to Ahab as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word, right? That. I don't know what Ahab's thinking here, whether he even believes Elijah or what's going on, but God's not happy with Ahab and everything he's done to institute idol worship, idolatry, and to get his attention, he sends Elijah and says, no rain until I say so. This kind of makes a little problem for Elijah too, right? Because there's no rain for Ahab. 
No rain for Jezebel. No rain for Israel. There's no rain for Elijah either, right? So, and then on top of that, even if Ahab doesn't believe him at, at this time when he hears the word, well, you know, it doesn't rain, doesn't rain, doesn't rain, doesn't rain some more. Keeps not raining, and Ahab's like, well, maybe Elijah was right. Let's go get him. I'll squeeze him until he says, bring on the rain. So Elijah's got a problem here. Something needs to happen for Elijah to survive the drought, the famine. Something needs to happen for him, to him to survive. So actually the story continues. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth River, Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he, Elijah, did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So Elijah's hiding out in this secluded valley, and that's how he's going to get through the drought, get through the famine. Water from the brook, right? birds will bring him food, birds will bring him meat and bread, like on cue, morning, evening, fantastic. That might sound pretty nice, food falling from the sky on schedule. We don't get any more details on what exactly the ravens are bringing here, but if you know anything about, uh, about ravens, they're omnivores, so they pick up just about anything that they can. They, they'll pick up anything they can eat. Um, so I don't know if you're envisioning like, wow, steaks and hamburgers and lamb chops for Elijah. Maybe not. Probably not. But maybe I. I don't know. But I, I probably it's mice and lizards and like rotten flesh that these ravens have picked out of the you know rotting lamb out in the back pasture that no one noticed was dead out there. And the brave the bread's probably discarded bread that nobody else wanted so it got thrown out and the ravens got it and brought him and i i maybe maybe i it is possible the ravens were pilfering from the king's table and brought really nice stuff that's possible i don't know we don't know for sure but we know the ravens brought right we know the ravens brought the food after a time the drought wears on the brook dries up elijah needs a new hideout right it's not location isn't working anymore this is continuing in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Sounds like this could be an upgrade from the raven delivery plan, right? He's going to live indoors and eat people food. Sounds pretty good. The woman there, she's been directed. She's prepared for him. She's going to have some food. So Elijah follows the directions and he goes to Zarephath. And when he gets to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And she was going to get it. As she was going to get it, he called and please and bring me a piece of bread. For sure, more happened here than is actually recorded. Um, but although the Lord directed the widow in some way to care for, to help Elijah. It doesn't look like she's like prepared for him. Like the, the meal's not ready. The banner, welcome Elijah, is not there. Um, she's definitely tended, you know, hesitant. He asks very meekly, would you bring me just a little water? And then she's going to bring the water. He says, oh, yes. And how about some bread? She replies, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home, make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
it sounds like Elijah could even have the wrong widow here. I, but, but no, I don't think she does. She does or he doesn't. Somehow she recognizes Elijah as a worshiper of God. When the widow says, Lord, your God, I want you to notice this is not just a generic reference to, like, you know, pick your own God, whatever one's yours, there it is. But in our translations, when we read our English translation, it's capitalized L-O-R-D. That reference means in the Hebrew it was a specific reference to the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Yahweh. She's recognizing somehow that Elijah, that's the God that he's, he's serving. The widow says to him essentially something like, your Lord might be alive, but I'm about to die. I can't help you. Wrong widow, Elijah. I'm as good as she's as good as dead. But Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. He seeks to bring this peace, peace into her life. You're right. He's saying you're right. The Lord, my God lives and you, dear widow, have no reason to be afraid. And Elijah continues, go home. And do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. We don't really know where this woman, the widow, stands in terms of her beliefs or what God she serves commentators, Bible scholars much smarter than I am, have argued both ways that she's, yes, she's a believer in Yahweh. No, she's a pagan. I, I don't know that we know exactly or we can know exactly for sure what she believes. We don't know her situation specifically. We don't know why she exactly or actually chooses to listen to Elijah's really unbelievable promise. But the story records what she does next. Here's what she does. So she went away and she did it. She did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word the Lord had spoken to Elijah. The woman demonstrated some faith, right? And it happened just like Elijah said it would. And do you see why it worked out that way? You see, you see what it says here? In keeping with the word of the Lord. It was the Lord's promise that he would sustain her, her son, and Elijah. So I want to take a moment, kind of a, kind of a pause here, and notice a few things that happened in this story so far. And so much of this story is really unfortunate, like horrible. There's widespread idol worship among the Israelites, selfish and mean king, selfish and mean and evil king and queen. There's widespread suffering due to the famine, due to the drought. Suffering extends beyond just Israel, even at least 100 miles or so north to Sidon, where um, Elijah is now. As we went through the story, there are a few instances, I, I think a few instances that I'm going to call it like significant irony, at least from our perspective. We went through kind of fast. So I want to pause and look at look at these because we probably missed them as we went. And I think this irony helps us understand God a little more, helps us understand how God works. A little more. So this is, this is sort of a quiz too. Right? What what animal helped Elijah survive when he was hiding out in the ravine? The, the ravens, right? Um, so did you know, according to Jewish law, the teaching in Leviticus, the ravens were called unclean 
they were they were unclean. They were to regard ravens as unclean. They weren't allowed to eat them, and because because they were unclean, because they were unclean, generally Jewish people didn't want anything to do with them. There are at least three species of ravens that live in modern day area of Israel today. Um, Elijah can't eat the ravens, but he can eat the food they're dropping off to him. I think that's kind of a little bit ironic. But might this be a picture of the way God brings salvation? Maybe, maybe in a way we don't expect. Um, the second thing I want to note is after the brook dried up, did you notice where Elijah went, where he was sent after the brook dried up? He was sent to Zarephath in a region called Sidon. Who else in this story is also from that same place? Jezebel. He's sent to like the home territory of the enemy to Sidon, and that's where he's going to be saved during this drought and this famine. That's pretty interesting. I, like kind of ironic, right? Might this be a picture of the way God brings salvation? Maybe, maybe in a way we don't expect. And then the third thing I want us to notice is who helped Elijah when he went to Zarephath. It was it was someone we don't, we don't even know her name. She's just referred to as widow. She's already suffered loss, right? That's why she's called widow, because she lost her husband. In this culture, at that time, the, a, a widow is not someone of means, of power, of reputation, of wealth, of resources, but her little bit of flour, her little bit of oil helps sustain Elijah, helps save Elijah, right? Helps save Elijah herself and her son through the drought and through the famine. It's kind of interesting, kind of maybe ironic, and maybe it's a picture of the way God brings salvation. Maybe, maybe in a way we don't expect. Well, the drought and famine's continuing on. We know it lasted over three years, but we don't know exactly where it is in this timeline in our story. Um, the story with the widow and Elijah continues. Stra- tragedy strikes this widow again. So this is continuing in 1 Kings 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Like, what is going on? This widow, she's already experienced the loss of her husband. She's living through this drought. She's surviving. She's making. She's a strange prophet living there for she doesn't know how long it's going to be. And this prophet could have done something about the famine, about the rain. And the woman, she listened, right? She listened to Elijah. She did what he had requested, but even still, with all of that, the son still dies, and she loses her son. Why? If we, if we kind of step back, pan out to the larger arc of the story of Elijah, it doesn't even really seem to make sense. Like, the son doesn't need to die for the whole Elijah confronting idolatry, uh, conquering the Baal prophets. Like that, the son doesn't have to die for that to happen. We'll hear more about that story in the next couple weeks. The death of the boy isn't crucial to that larger storyline. After all, what needs to happen? Elijah just needs to survive, right? He needs to survive through the drought. That's happening. He's eating bread and bread and bread and bread. But, you know, it's still it's food. So why did the boy, why did the boy die? Why did the boy 
have to die. So about 850 years after this story, Jesus comments on Elijah. We heard this last week uh, during the sermon with Pastor Duncan. Jesus is uh, he's going to his hometown um, his, in Nazareth, and he goes into the, the synagogue, and he's reading from the scrolls, and the people are like, hey, wait a second. I think I recognize that guy. Isn't that Joseph's son? And Jesus knows what they're thinking. Um, and he goes on to tell them something they already know. Right? Remember, Elijah is essentially a, a superhero to the, the Jewish faith, but he goes on to tell them something they already know about Elijah. And this is, this is what Jesus said in Luke 4. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, wasn't sent to any of the widows of Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. When, when God appointed, directed, led that widow from Sidon to care for Elijah, he'd chosen an outsider. He'd chosen someone else, someone from outside their group. Early in the Old Testament, with the story of, of Abraham, and Abraham's given the promise that, that God would choose the descendants of Abraham to be his people and be the object of his blessings and his promises, and here in this story with Elijah, someone else, someone outside is chosen. Someone that the Jewish people would have looked at, the Israelites would have looked at and said, no, she's not one of us. But that's who God chose to save Elijah. And, and I, th- I think this is a big and, in that process, who else was saved? She was saved physically, her life. She was saved too during that drought. Hmm. Maybe that's a picture of the way God brings salvation, right? Maybe to people that we don't expect. So we're still not quite there. Back to the the question of why did the boy have to die? And on one level, we could say death is natural. It's unfortunate, but it just happens. We age, we get ill, it happens. But I still, her question's a fair one, right? She confronts Elijah. Come on, Elijah. Haven't I been a help to you? You're a man of God. Am I so bad that I deserve this? You must have something to do with this, or at least you could have stopped it, and you did nothing. Was this your intention all along that my son would die? You know, this is actually worse than if you hadn't come, because now my son's dead, and I'm still alive. Her fear, sorrow, concern, anger, sadness, like all that suite of emotions, completely totally understandable, right? Probably even appropriate. And and Elijah responds to her. He says to her, give me your son. And he took the son from her arms. He carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought this tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? So I, I don't, I'm not the only one. We're not the only ones who are confused of what's going on here. Elijah, God's own prophet, who God used to speak to Ahab, used to perform miracles. He's confused too. Elijah's confused. What's going on here, God? Right? The food, like, not so good, but it's not running out. I've got space here in the house. Like, I'm safe. Jezebel and Ahab haven't found me. We've got a good thing going here. Why did you cause the boy to die? Right? Do you see Elijah wrestling here? He's wrestling with God, and he... But Elijah continues praying. And Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, 
Let this boy's life return to him. Let this boy's life return to him. And then the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house and he gave him to his mother. And he said, look, your son is alive. And Elijah, right, he did it again. He called on the power of the Lord. The Lord raises the boy back to life. And generations of Jewish children and people and would, would learn this story of the superhero Elijah who raises the dead. Pretty amazing. I, that's amazing. But I don't even think we're to the most amazing part of the story yet. And I don't think we have an qu- answer to our question of why did the boy have to die in the first place. Let's read on. Then the woman said to Elijah, now. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Now she knows. The woman sees her son. Yeah, he's alive again. And she says, I believe you now, Elijah. You really are speaking truth from the L-O-R-D, capital Lord. Yahweh, Lord God. During the drought and famine, this outsider, this person who was not one of Abraham's descendants, not an Israelite's, She was saved. She was sustained physically with that miracle of the flour and the oil. Now with the death and resurrection of her son, we see this woman move from a spiritual or from a physical salvation to spiritual. You speak truth. Now I know. Now I believe. Could this be why her son died? Might might this might this son have died so the works of God could be displayed Could it be that the son died so that the the mom, his mother, would see this miracle, this sign, and then believe in the one true God? Do you notice another bit of irony here? The physical death of her son was used to produce life. That's pretty interesting. Might this be a, a picture of the way God brings salvation to us, that death produced life? Is this something, like, maybe, maybe we've seen and heard before. So today we dug into one part of the life of Elijah. Pretty incredible story. Maybe we were familiar with it. Maybe it was new to us. Maybe just a refresher. But we saw that Gen- that Elijah really is. Like he, he really is a superhero of the Old Testament, not through some weird fluke, but through God's power. So it's kind of like when my five-year-old said, yeah, superheroes are coming to my school tomorrow, firefighter and like real people. Elijah is a real person powered by God. And, and Elijah was used by God to demonstrate God's power over life, physically and spiritually. And in that story with the widow, we see God's gift of spiritual life. It's for all, all people. Jesus emphasized that when he reminded us about the story with Elijah. He was sent to widow outside of Israel, and she was saved. An outsider. So I wonder, so what, what would it look like if we really believed that? Like, what would it look like in our lives if we really believed, really lived as though God had power over all, all life? What would it look like if we believed that God really offered everlasting life to all, all, all people? What would it look like in our community, in our lives, in our church? 
What would that look like? Would, would we maybe, m- might we be more deliberate in bringing that life to those around us? Might we be more deliberate in meeting the needs, even physical needs of the people around us? More intentional about sharing good news of God's everlasting life with the people around us? And I know, I know, I know, life's busy, so many things to do, great, fantastic, wonderful, important things to do. Elijah was really engaged with pretty important things too, right? Like confronting the whole nation of Israel with their idolatry and confronting Ahab. Like, but in that, in that bigger story, we saw him very personally engaging with one person, one family. He was looking outward, right? And what if, what if we look outward of ourselves, looking beyond our own lives, even looking outside like our own own church here. And so I, I think this is a challenge on a lot of levels, right? Because this is, when I say here, like here, this, this is really comfortable, right? It's pretty comfortable. But I think if we really believed, really lived as though God had power over all life and he offered that everlasting life to all people, maybe we would look outward a little bit more. I think I think maybe we would. So I, I, I think there's some a personal individual application for us here. Maybe as I'm saying this, maybe as we're reading this, you're already thinking, oh, yeah, there's someone I really need to connect with, really need to meet them in their needs physically and share with them and um, bring them spiritual life. Maybe. But I, I want to just suggest for us as a as a group here, as a church, that there's an application. Um, if you've been part of CBC for more than the last few months, Few, few months or so, you know that we've hired a, a full-time staff person, right? Uh, his name's Tyler. He's, his position is called an outreach pastor. And we as a, as a congregation, as a local church, we've identified this idea of turning outward, like looking beyond us here as something that's really, really important, right? Something about reaching the people that are even closest in proximity to us. That's, a, that's an important function of this, this local church. And something that would we've identified that we can do better, right? We could do that better. So Tyler was hired, brought on staff here to help us do that better. He and his family will be here in just a few weeks, right? And moving, if you ever move, like all the stresses of a new place, new people, new job, new responsibilities, like there's like all of that, just where's, where are things, right? All of that's going to be there for him. But at some point, probably sooner than later, he's going to say something like this. Hey, you, you, you individual, you group. I'm saying it like, like accusatory. That's, I don't think that's how it's going to be. He's going to be like, Hey, Hey, you, Hey, you group more like me, probably like that. Um, my voice says I don't smile enough. I don't. Okay. But I'm sure. Hey, you, 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 you individual, you, you group. Do you have some time to meet and chat? Like, Hey, I have some ideas, you know, can I get some ideas from you about reaching out to people in our community? You know, at some point, that something like that's going to happen. Or maybe he's going to say, hey, CBC, check this out. Check this out. There's this idea I've been working on for reaching out in our community, and I'm looking for you CBCers to join me. I need some people to help out doing this. And what if we really believed that God had power over all life and that he offered life to all? What would we do? Oh, I'm kind of busy this week. Sorry. No. No. This is, this is one that... Like, I was in a meeting this week. Just don't make eye contact. I won't be volunteered. Like, right? No eye contact. They won't see I'm here. 
But what would we do if we really believed, really believed it was for all people, that God had power over all life, and he offered everlasting life to all people? What would we do? Might we be actually kind of clamoring for like, hey, hey, me, me, I'm going to help out. Or even being proactive and saying, hey, what can I do to reach out? What would it be like? What would it be like in here if we went out there because we believed God's gift of everlasting life was really for all people? Elijah was used by God to show, to demonstrate God's power, his authority over life, and to show that God's gift, his free gift, his everlasting life is for all people. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we're reminded this morning that you are Lord over all and you offer salvation to all. Your death on the cross, Lord, opened the path to everlasting life and that gift is offered to all people. Like you used Elijah, might you use us to bring physical life, to bring spiritual life to those around us in our towns, our neighbors, and our community. Amen. Stand with me for the benediction, please. So before Jesus went to heaven, before he ascended to heaven, he spoke to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.